assurance of the forgiveness of their sins. This is our comfort also as we worship the Lord our God this morning. Let's now turn to God's word to be taught and instructed by him. Our text this morning comes from 1 Kings 16. Our reading, that is, our text will be 1 Kings 17. But our reading will be 1 Kings 16, beginning in verse 29. And we'll read through chapter 17, verse 24. First Kings 16, beginning in verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to, to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho, he laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it, and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. 
And she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on these things, let's sing together from Psalm 104, stanzas 3 and 7. As mentioned, the text for this morning is 1 Kings 17. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, you'll have noticed that we skipped several chapters, and we did that on purpose. The goal in this series is to focus on those, those periods where the, the camera, as it were, slows down or zooms in into the different events in Israel's history. And in the last several chapters, we've just skipped several generations of kings, And so before we get into the the text in front of us, 1 Kings 17, it would be helpful to mention a few things that are not explicitly said in the chapters before. This is going to help us to approach the text with the right perspective. There's, There's important lessons not only in what's said in the text, but also what's not said in the text. The first thing is, Omri, the king that you barely hear anything about at all in 1 Kings 16, he's mentioned right in the the verses right before what we read, he's given eight verses, he was a massive political figure in Israel. History textbooks today would have given him far more attention than 1 Kings gives to him. He's just mentioned there in eight verses in, in chapter 16. And then we find the text moves on as it does with, with all the other kings. It just describes what he did, who he was, where he came from, and then moves on. Omri was actually one of the most famous kings in Israel's history. He was hugely successful in every way that you would expect a political leader to be successful. He had a huge army. He expanded Israel's borders. He ran these massive construction projects. And and he was immensely popular among the people. He built Samaria, the capital city of Israel. Many scholars would argue that you really didn't have a state, a a kingdom in, in the north until you had Omri to put it all together. So you could say, in a way, he made Israel great again, if you want to use today's terms. 
And so we see something of the, the author's priorities here as, as he works through the kings. You get to a king like Amri, and the people might have expected him to spend chapters on a king like this, but, but the author simply moves along. It's not looking for that kind of worldly success. So that's the first thing we can notice, that the, the author to the kings chooses which kings and which stories he focuses on selectively. He's trying to write a biography uh, or, or a history that describes what God is doing and what God's priorities are. The second thing we should notice is that Ahab, he's the son of Amri, and he's a king who does get a lot of attention in the next several chapters. He not only inherited that prosperous kingdom that his father created for him, but he made it even greater. He built a number of palaces filled with ivory. You can read about that in 1 Kings 22, just in in a single verse, it just mentions that. And, and in, in addition to that, he, he ended several wars. He created several new alliances. He revitalized several major trade routes. So just like his father, he would have been an immensely popular king. He gained access for Israel to the trading ports of Tyre and Sidon, which were, were, were massive if you were going to be a globalized country. You needed access to those ports. And before Ahab, they didn't have that. So that gave Israel huge economic benefits. And you can imagine just how popular King Ahab was. Under his long rule of 22 years, you you get the sense of a stable kingdom, Israel prospered under that long rule in just about every respect. For the most part, everyone would have agreed times were good in Israel. In every respect except for religion. In every other respect, he brought stability and prosperity to Israel. So in the Bible, we know Ahab as a very bad king, and we think of him as a very destructive figure, and he was, but in his day, he didn't have that kind of negative press at all. One more thing. I mentioned that, that uh, Ahab created new alliances and established new trade routes. And one of the main ways that he did so was by marrying Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians. It was a political marriage and it served to, to open up those, those trade routes and to build those alliances, which were, again, very popular alliances. So when Jezebel wanted to go and promote the worship of Baal, most people didn't think that such a big problem. After all, they had jobs as a result. And then, so when we find Elijah now opposing that worship, and we're going to see this over the next several chapters, Elijah opposing this worship of Baal, you can only imagine how much Elijah was considered a disturber of the peace and really an enemy of the state. Several times Ahab calls him my enemy, and you can see why. The only instability in Israel was on the religious front. And as far as Ahab and probably most people were concerned, that was all the fault of those religious fundamentalists. So that's the context for this text. That's how this text opens. The author assumes that we're somewhat aware of these realities because he cites all these other books of of chronicles and kings that we don't have any longer. So he assumes that we're aware of these realities, but we need to know them as we go in. His goal then is to provide us with God's perspective on these prosperous, popular kings. 
Well, with that said, the author makes it very clear in chapter 16, right from the outset, what God's perspective on Ahab was. You see that in chapter 16, verse 30, Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So that's the opening for this chapter. And that's, that's why we read about Elijah then in chapter 17, verse 1. We're introduced to him. He's, he's called Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead. And other than his name and, and where he came from, the text doesn't tell us much about this figure, Elijah. Gilead was a, a settler's community. It was pretty rough terrain up in, <clears throat> up in the north of, of Israel. And that's about all we know of him. The text doesn't tell us who his parents were. It doesn't tell us whether he was already well-known in Israel or whether this is the first time he ever appeared on the scene. This is certainly the first place we ever hear about him. So he came to Ahab in verse 1 and and declared to him, As Yahweh the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now what we need to realize is this is a direct assault on Baal. Not only is God punishing the people for their unfaithfulness because they're worshiping another God, but he specifically does so in the way that is the most insulting to Baal. You see, Baal was the storm god. He was, he was pictured as a bull and he represented fertility. He was the god of rain and, and thunder and all things fertile. And, and so Baal was the one who was supposed to send rain and dew. And so in response to the people worshiping the God who's supposed to bring rain, God stopped the rain and he dried up the dew. Now the people can see how powerful this God Baal really is. So God, right at the beginning, exposes Baal for what he really is, a fraud. And the more the people are going to ramp up their worship of Baal, the, more, the, the less effective Baal is going to be. So that's what Elijah comes in saying to Ahab. And as soon as he says that, as quickly as he appears on the scene, he disappears. In chapter 18, we're going to read next week about how how Ahab looked everywhere for Elijah, but couldn't find him anywhere in Israel or outside of Israel, even in the surrounding nations. He would go and he would make them swear that they had no idea where Elijah was. Well, God sent Elijah eastward across the Jordan to a small brook called Kareth. We don't know exactly where that brook was. Some scholars have suggestions. But it was, it was obviously a very remote spot. It's a brook that may or may not still exist today. Some remote spot out in the wilderness. And there God told Elijah, You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. What we can notice from this is that even while Baal is losing control over the rain and the thunder and everything else he's supposed to be good at, God was still in such complete control that he was able to sustain his prophet, to send him out there into the wilderness and sustain him by commanding ravens to feed him. And this is the point. While Baal, who's supposed to be the god of fertility, was unable to sustain life in the fertile valleys of Israel, God sustained it in the most unlikely places, even out in the wilderness. 
Now, the text doesn't say how long Elijah stayed there in hiding. But while he was there, it says, The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. It's an interesting way that it, it phrases uh, the sustenance that Elijah got. If you, if you know your Old Testament well, you'd be reminded of how the Israelites were also cared for with manna and quail falling from heaven. And it's interesting if you just look at how it's worded in, in Exodus 16, how the Israelites were cared for. Um, Moses says to them, The Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full. And, and that's repeated again a couple of verses later. He says, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. So their diet was meat in the evening and bread in the morning. But here you notice God sustains Elijah with twice what he sustained the Israelites. They had bread in the morning and meat in the evening. Elijah had bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And all of that while the Israelites were starving, looking for any kind of sustenance from a God who was no God at all. So so the point that God is making here is, just as God cared for Israel in the wilderness, he's able to care for them now and even twice as much. He's able to give twice as much as he gave then. God's resources are never drained. Baal might be out of resources, but there's no limit to God's to, to, to what God is able to give. He doesn't work on, on this sort of zero-sum basis where if he gives some blessings to some people, then he has to give less to other people. No, he's the God whose resources never, ever run out. And he, he's the God who created from nothing. And so even in a place where you wouldn't expect ever to find life, a place like the wilderness, there you find God still sustaining, still providing for life to, to, to happen. So while the people were worshiping Baal out in the dry fields that were supposed to be fertile, and by the drying out rivers where they were still trying to worship Baal, they were dying of starvation. And meanwhile, God, who had sustained them before, even in the wilderness, was supplying his own prophet with everything that he needed in the place where you would least expect him to be able to survive. Well, eventually that brook did dry up because of the famine. Now, we know, of course, God could have made that brook continue to go on and on. That's what he did for Moses in the wilderness, bringing water out of the rock. But instead, he told Elijah to go to Zarephath, where he commanded a widow to feed him there. And again, we see how God sustains Elijah in the most unlikely of places. The last place where you would ever expect anyone to be able to sustain a prophet or any guest would be a widow who were the poorest of the people. But there's also a much bigger irony here in the place that God sends Elijah. Elijah is being sent, did you notice it, to Sidon which is the heartland of Baal's territory. That's where Jezebel was from. This is way outside of the borders of Israel. So surely the author is expecting us to read this and to think, wait, God sent Elijah where? To Sidon? Why would Elijah go to Sidon, where Baal was supposed to live? But that's where God sends him, far outside of Israel, to a widow who lived in Sidon. And God told him, I have commanded a widow to feed you there. We see that God works in surprising ways. And God also works in gracious ways. 
God used this time of punishing Israel, punishing his people, disciplining them for worshiping Baal. God used that opportunity to also bring grace to someone who would never have expected it, a widow outside of Israel in the heartland of Baal's territory. So Elijah went, he arose and went to Zarephath. And, and we notice Zarephath was a city because it says as he was approaching the city that he saw this widow. So it was actually a fairly large uh, city. It was one of those ports in, in, in the region of Sidon that received ships from all over the world. It would have been one of the last places to suffer from the famine because of all the trade that they were able to do. But even there, we can see that they were, they were starving you can't trade, after all, if you don't have any goods to offer. And they typically would have offered grains and other agricultural goods. Those ships would have been full of, uh, of grain and wheat and, and things like that. But nothing was growing anymore. So even a, 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 a flourishing city like, like uh, Zarephath was finally running out of money. And the first people to feel the effects of that economic downturn would have been the poor widows who relied on other people's prosperity and generosity to to survive. And so as Elijah entered the city, he saw a poor widow, probably nothing but skin and bones by this point because she's she's preparing what she thinks is going to be her last meal. And he calls out to her, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. They must have had a spring or a well nearby because she doesn't object to that, to that request. So they clearly had, had water at least. Um, so she turns around to go and get some water for him. But as she was going away, he also called out to her, and bring me a morsel of bread with you. Well, that's where she has to turn and apologize to him that there's nothing she can do for him. She says to him, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering sticks so that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son so that we may eat it and die. Now, in that response, you immediately wonder why this, this Gentile woman, she lives outside of Israel, far, far outside of Israel, she swears by the name of Yahweh. She says, as Yahweh your God lives. Now, some say, well, then she must have been a believer, and that's possible. But notice she does say, as the Lord your God lives. And so it's probably more likely that she just recognized that Elijah was an Israelite. He would have had a distinct accent. And so she assumes that he must be a worshiper of Yahweh. The text doesn't say whether that's the case or whether she's a believer. But in any case, she, she wasn't able to help Elijah because she only had enough flour and oil left for herself and her son. And she fully expected this was going to be her last meal ever. She'd already gone to every neighbor. She'd already called out every favor And it must have been a long time since she'd received anything, so that now she expects she's not going to live much longer. But Elijah, it's almost cruel as you listen to what Elijah's saying. He insists, go ahead, make that meal, but first make me a little cake and bring it to me, and afterward you can make something for yourself and your son. You feel, you feel bad for the poor widow as, as Elijah says this to her. It's such a cruel thing to ask from this widow who's only got barely enough for one last meal for herself and her son. 
But that's not all that Elijah tells her. He also says to her in verse 14, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that Yahweh sends rain upon the earth. Now it's amazing that the woman actually did as Elijah commanded her. I, I can't help but think that if I had been in her position, I probably wouldn't have believed this prophet who claims that if you just take your last little bit of flour and, and oil, then God will still leave enough for you. There's enough, enough hucksters out there that claim the role of prophet or pastor that I probably wouldn't have believed it myself. And I can imagine those realities would have been true in that day as well. But amazingly, the woman did as Elijah told her. Now, looking back at it afterward, it might have seemed to us like the obvious thing for her to do because he's a prophet of Yahweh after all. But of course, it certainly wouldn't have seemed that way to her at the time. She, she had almost certainly never met Elijah before. This wasn't at all his home territory. And so why should she believe this promise from a man that she didn't know, a wandering prophet, even a foreigner, that, that God would keep the flour and oil from running out? You have to admire this woman's incredible faith that she believes Yahweh's words and does as he tells her. And maybe verse 9 provides an explanation for why she did what she did, why she was ready to listen to Elijah. God told Elijah in verse 9 that he had commanded a widow to feed him. And a lot of commentators sort of read that as God had ordained a widow to feed her, to feed him. But that's not what the text says. The text does say God commanded a widow to feed him. So maybe this happened to her in a vision or a dream or some other way that God commanded her to feed a prophet who was coming. And that's why this woman was so ready to listen when Elijah came along. She took a leap of faith, but it wasn't a complete leap in the dark. She was obeying God's command. Whatever the case, you, you certainly have to be amazed at the fact that, that here is a Gentile widow who doesn't know probably much at all about the Lord, and, but who does know the name of the Lord and believes in his power to give and sustain life and, and listens to his prophet while God's own people couldn't be brought to, to serve and believe in God. So this Gentile widow demonstrates for us what faith really looks like, even while God's people refused to believe. She didn't have any guarantee that things would happen exactly as Elijah had said. The only reason she obeyed was because she believed that Yahweh was able to keep his word. She knew that name Yahweh, and she knew that the God behind that name was powerful and was able to provide exactly according to his word. And Israel, the, the shameful thing about this whole story is that Israel should have been able to see the same thing. God's people should have known what that name Yahweh stood for. They should have never grown used to him and even tired of him. And they certainly never should have walked away from him. So while God's people are turning away from, from the God of life, you find a poor Gentile widow who's receiving his promises instead. And she knew better than to walk away from God's promises. 
And perhaps you remember the Lord Jesus referred to this incident uh, a couple of thousand, or at least a thousand years later when he was teaching in, in Nazareth and his own people rejected him. And he, he, he saw the same thing that we're seeing here, God's people forsaking him, God's people refusing to believe in him, and the Gentiles instead gladly receiving him. And so the Lord Jesus told, told his own people in Luke 4, verse 25, he says, In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and, and a great famine came over all the land. But Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. In other words, if God's people are too good for his blessings, there's always going to be someone who's gladly willing to receive them instead. In fact, the Lord Jesus himself uh, made a journey very much like Elijah's journey. He himself also went to Sidon to another Canaanite woman. We don't know if she was a widow or not. Uh, and, and perhaps even from the same place. And as he was going through this region, the, this woman came out to him, crying out to him to have mercy on her and to heal her daughter who was oppressed by a demon. And even the Lord Jesus initially resisted her pleas because he says, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. He says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, you might think that's a very offensive thing for Jesus to say, and it, it certainly was, but the woman owned it. She accepted that, being called a dog by the Lord Jesus. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off of the master's table. And Jesus responded to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you desire. That is what faith looks like. It's knowing who God is. It's knowing God's power and knowing also how unworthy we are of God's blessing. How sad it is that here we find God's people who ought to know best, not believing in him, turning their backs on him, thinking they're too good for his blessings. And, and instead, a poor Gentile widow instead receiving them. How sad it is when the children don't want the master's bread. But there are always lowly, humble dogs who are willing and ready to receive it instead. So the woman did as Elijah asked her, and she and her household, we read, ate for many days. Verse 16, the, flour, the, the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. But then there's a twist in the story. We discover God's blessing turns into tragedy for this woman. The woman's son became sick and so sick that he died. The text says that his breath left him, but that's not some way of saying that he was still barely alive. He was certainly dead, and you can see that by, by the fact that it later says his life came back into him. And so, so her son died, and the woman immediately turned to Elijah as the cause of her son's death. You see that in verse 18. She said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me, you have come to, me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. It's interesting the Lord, that the, the woman responds to Elijah in that way. I don't think the woman was wrong to blame 
to blame God for the death of her son. And in fact, she wasn't even wrong to tie her son's death to her her own sin. And again, it's not that the, the death of a child is always punishment for sin. We saw that already last week. But this woman did recognize rightly that she had sin in her life that was unaccounted for and that she should have been more thoughtful before receiving the righteous Yahweh into her home. Because God is righteous. God is holy. You cannot invite God into your life for blessing and expect him to cohabit with your sin. So even though we know there's, there's more to the story, the story's not over yet, this woman was right to recognize that death was the consequence for her sin. She didn't just accuse God of being cruel to her. She, she recognized that God was bringing her sin to remembrance. Death was the appropriate result of sin, even though she, wanted, even, even though she didn't want it to happen. And it's, it's a heartbreaking story, but it's also amazing at the same time that she doesn't accuse God of doing wrong to her, which would have been so easy to do after God took her son's life. She doesn't accuse God of doing wrong because she realized this is only what her sins deserved. She brings her sin even into this darkest moment of her life. And so her complaint with the prophet isn't for God being wrong to her, but only for, for him bringing her near to God in the first place. If death and judgment for sin are the consequence of knowing the Lord, then who, after all, would want to know the Lord? Far better to have him far away, to keep him at arm's length. But we see God is not done yet, showing his grace to this Gentile widow She knew the consequence of her sin. She was broken before him. But God was even more powerful and even more merciful than she ever could have imagined. She had already, at this point, given up hope. She had never even asked Elijah to actually do anything for her. She only comes to him in despair. But Elijah knew his God. So he brought this child up to the upper room in her house where, she was stay- where he was staying, and, and he laid the child on his own bed and cried out to God in verse 20, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? In other words, is there no way to God's mercy and blessing. He's already angry with Israel for, for, for forsaking him. Is there no way to be received by him? Is there no way that sinners can come into the presence of this God? Does God's anger even stretch to this Gentile widow who had taken him in simply because she also was a sinner? He must have thought, God, why even send me here to this widow who didn't know you anyways? Why even show her all this grace if it's really only to take it away in the end? But then we see that Elijah stretched himself upon the child and prayed to God, Yahweh, let this child's life come into him again. It's the difference between Elijah's response and the widow's response. The widow only came to him in despair, saying, Have you even brought this on me? But Elijah came with that same complaint to God, but then he also came knowing that God could even bring a person back from the dead. 
And the text doesn't say why Elijah did this, this uh, prayer the way he did, why he stretched himself upon the child three times. But it seems like it's a prayer that's being acted out. And that happens fairly often with the prophets. It's as if Elijah is laying down his own life for the life of this child. As if, God, take me instead and take this child back to life. Well, whatever Elijah's exact motives were, one thing is certainly clear. Elijah made himself unclean in a very major way by doing this. Even by entering the same room as a dead body, he would have made himself unclean. And certainly touching a dead body and stretching himself over a dead body certainly made him unclean. And doing that three times makes him about as unclean as you can get. So he's identified himself with this dead, unclean child. Now, you might have expected God to become angry with Elijah for doing this, for breaking the, the, the ceremonial law, totally violating it in about the most extreme way possible. And yet we discover the most amazing thing happens. In verse 22, the Lord, Yahweh, listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again and was revived. God listened to Elijah's prayer. And God did what up till this point had never happened before in history and would only happen once more years later with Elisha and then again with the Lord Jesus. God brought this boy back to life. Somehow Elijah believed that God could do this and he even believed that God would do this. You see such incredible faith in Elijah, taking the child from, from the child's mother and bringing him up into the upper room without a guarantee, without a promise that God would actually raise that child back to life. And we might think, what reason did he have to expect that from God? That God would actually raise that boy from the dead, something that God had never done before for anybody. And yet, Elijah knew that God could do it, and he knew that no words of, of humble prayer before God are ever wasted. You never waste your time by asking God to do what you might think, I'm not sure God actually will do for me. We don't waste words with God when we come to him in humble prayer. And so instead of the, the, dead's child, the dead child's uncleanness passing from the child to Elijah, instead we see it goes the other way. And Elijah's life passes from, the chi- from him to the child. And so we find one last and great demonstration of God's power. He sustained life in the most unlikely place in the wilderness, first of all. And then he gave life in Baal's homeland in Sidon, far outside the border of Israel, even while Baal was letting his own people down. And now we find that God even crosses the greatest boundary, the greatest border of all between life and death. He did what surely everyone would have agreed is impossible. He even brought life back from the dead. This is really the greatest demonstration of God's power. We see it escalating in this chapter to the highest extreme. So Elijah took this child then and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said to her, See, your son lives. And then the woman said to him, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And that's how the chapter ends. These are the last words that that we get from the widow and the final words of the chapter. 
And as, as it happens so often in the book of Kings, the final words in the chapter are the words that the author wants to be left ringing in our ears. Now I know that you are the, a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is what the people of Israel needed to learn, that the word of the prophet is the word of God. When the faithful prophet speaks, God speaks. This would be the age of the prophets, and, and really that age continues even today through, through Scripture. And this was the age when God spoke through prophets, and that age would continue on to Christ, the greatest prophet. God would not be found anymore by worshiping at, at the high God would not be found at all by worshiping at the high places or at the golden calves, but would speak instead through his word. And that's the lesson that is left ringing in the ears of the readers. This is where you find God in his word through the prophets. But this chapter isn't only about prophets and about the power of the prophet's word as a spokesman for God. It's also about the power of God himself and the character of God himself, the God who cares for his prophets, the God who speaks ahead of his prophets to command ravens or to command widows and even to command life and death, and they obey. This is the God who reaches out to Gentile widows, to people who never would have expected to know him. And this is the only God that gives life. Baal was completely unable to give or sustain life. But God gives life in even the most unlikely places and to the most unlikely people. He gives life even in territory that we would all conclude belong to other gods. There he is, in miraculous ways, giving life where other gods have failed to deliver on their promises. He gives life in the same way today also, in the most unlikely places. In the heart of a place like Mecca, you can find God giving life. In those destitute villages in North Korea, you find God giving life. In the hearts of betrayed and broken homosexuals or guilt-ridden abortionists, there you find God giving life. And this is about the God who, in fact, would even overcome death itself. See, your son lives, says Elijah. But really, we should be asking how. It shouldn't be possible, not just because it's impossible for the dead to come back to life, but also because the woman was right. This was what her sins deserved. And yet, somehow, she had her son back. What did it mean, then, for her sin? This widow in Sidon was right. She recognized that death was the result of inviting God into her life because God doesn't cohabit with sin. And yet we find God brought her son back to life. And it could only mean that God also had a plan to deal with her sin. Even the guilt of hell, which our sins deserve, which demand our death, even that is not too great a boundary for God to conquer. He gives life through Christ, through the greatest prophet, through the word of God himself incarnate, who died for our sins, to, as the woman says, to bring our sins to remembrance before the face of God. And yet, by a power that can only be God's, he also rose again. He crucified that sin. He put it to death once and for all, so that he can give life to those who belong to him. 
And you can tell who those people are who belong to him. They, they know that they are dogs, just like this widow. They know that they don't deserve God's grace. And yet they know that God has shown him grace anyways in Christ. And so they gladly receive it. They look to God with full expectation, the way that that widow did when she fed Elijah with the last of the food that she had. They look to him with full expectation, and they receive his blessings with gratitude. They know that this is the God who's able, completely able, to keep all of his promises. This is the God whose word never fails. He alone gives life. And not just physical life, raising physical bodies from the dead, though he certainly will, but true life, life with him. Life with him invited even into their homes without bringing death with him. Well, it can happen that much of God's own people, like, like, in this, like, like in that day, much of God's people can take God's blessings for granted and they can turn their backs on him. But it's the poor, the unlikely, the dogs that gladly accept life from God, knowing that they don't deserve it. And when they do, they discover that he is the source of true life, meaningful life. And not just with jars of oil and, and, and flour, but jars of blessings that never run out to sustain us in this life, but also in the life to come, that bring us to eternal life with him. So let's take this chapter... And let's remember again what our God is able to do to give life to us when we're broken because of our sin and also to others, to the unlikely, to those that we never would have expected God to give life to, where we never would have expected people to turn and repent and find his mercy. Their God also delights to give life and to bring life back from the dead. And let's remember that we are still the Gentiles here. We are the people that not only dwelt in in Sidon, but really on the opposite end of the world. And so let's not take God's grace for granted ourselves either, as the Israelites did. We are the dogs. We are the unworthy people in this story. And yet God's promises are really ours because of Christ. He's able to. And he delights even to save unworthy people like us, to bless those who look for their life in him and don't expect it to find to, don't expect to find it in themselves. This is our God. Amen. Let's sing in response from hymn forty one all stanzas.